Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series on careers in the atmospheric and related sciences. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Rex Horner, and we'll be your hosts. Our podcast series will give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We are excited to introduce today's guest, Matt Bronzak, a weather portfolio advisor and principal aviation systems engineer at the MITRE Corporation in McLean, Virginia. Welcome, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here, but uh, you you said expert right up front, and that made me wonder if I'm really the correct person on here. (laughs) We hope so, and we think so. And let's find out. All right. Matt, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and what sparked your interest in meteorology? Sure. Um, I, I have a theory about this particular topic that you brought up, Kelly. That, and, and my theory is that there are two flavors of meteorologists in this world. There are those who um, knew they wanted to be meteorologists from the moment they left the womb and came into, into this world. Um, and those are the folks, by the way, whose whose moms, instead of giving them a rattle, gave them a sling psychrometer. Um, and then there are those who kind of backed into meteorology by accident. Um, I fall into the latter category. I hope that doesn't disappoint anybody, but it's true. Um, I was a, a midshipman at the U.S. Naval Academy in uh, 19, early 1970s. We'll just leave it there. And, and uh, an oceanography major, and as such, I took my first uh, meteorology class as part of the oceanography um, program at, at uh, Annapolis. Um, after my um, sophomore year, prior to the start of junior year, I voluntarily separated from the academy, went back home. Um, my parents said, well, now that you're back home, that's fine. But we had sort of counted on you um, being at the Naval Academy for four years and, and this not costing us anything. And now you're back home. So maybe you better go get a job. Uh, so I went and got a job uh, with Delta Airlines uh, working in their cabin service department, which cleans airplanes and provisions airplanes and does stuff like that. And, um, and uh, a few months into it, realized that um, if I didn't get my myself back into school soon, um, I was going to be beguiled by this massive $718 a month salary I was making back then and maybe never get back to school. So I I looked around. This is up in the Boston area. I looked around to see what was available for somebody like myself and um, found that the, uh, the Lowell Tech at the time um, was offering... Um, some summer school classes. So I went to summer school, decided I, I liked the school up there and, and determined to, to restart my college career back there. So um, I, I looked at their course catalog and, and said, okay, um, I'm kind of, a, I, I'm not a humanities person. I'm a STEM sort of person. So we, we can leave the humanities aside and um, let's now look at, at what STEM sort of things I might want to do. Well, I, could, I, I like math. I could be a mathematician, but then what would I do afterwards? And I don't know. Um, physics is sort of interesting, and, and, you know, and uh, some of the engineering programs are sort of interesting, but they're likely to be pretty hard. Um, Biology is interesting, but it's awfully messy. I know. Here it is. I'll be a meteorology major. I've already taken a class at the Naval Academy. It wasn't too bad. Um, I, I think I'm going to pursue that. And so I, I applied for acceptance at Lowell Tech in 19, I guess, 75. And um, 
the department head, Dr. Curtis, tried to talk me out of it. Um, I, I wouldn't take no for an answer, and he finally he let me in. And, and what I discovered after the fact was that although meteorology wasn't messy like biology, it certainly was hard. And I certainly could have used, uh, at, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, some of those humanities classes that, that I was trying to avoid um, to help me um, communicate the message that I had as a meteorologist to, to the, the customers that I was serving. In any event, I graduated from then the University of Lowell in 1978 with a Bachelor of Science in Meteorology. And then educationally, I did nothing for the next 30 years, um, approximately. Uh, however, in 2005, I decided that it would behoove me um, to, to go back to school and, and, and perhaps finish out, round out my education. So I went back to graduate school at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and a couple of two, three years later, um, received my uh, master's in aeronautical sciences degree from them. So that's my that's my uh, my my background and and as I mentioned, uh, why meteorology? Well, for me, it was a bit of an accident, but I must say, frankly, it was a it was a happy accident. So why did your advisor try to talk you out of it? Oh, he said that there were way too many meteorologists and there were jobs and you didn't get paid much money and you're going to have a heck of a time finding a job after you get out of school. And I mentioned to him that I was already working for an airline that had a meteorology department and, you know, maybe they'd be able to, to use me at that point. So he just thought, honestly, um, that there were too many meteorologists and not enough jobs and, and, and there were better places for me to, 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 to spend my time. So let's go back to 1978. You graduated from University of Lowell. And what came next after your job uh, in cabin service with Delta? Well, I was actually at the time then uh, working in, on the ramp. Uh, so I'd, I'd, been, uh, I'd been promoted to a bag smasher from an airplane cleaner. And um, I also, as I mentioned, knew that Delta had a Met shop. And so I while I was going to school full-time and, and, and working at Delta, I reached out to the manager of the meteorology department, C.L. Chandler, and, and told him that who I was and where I was and what I was doing. And, you know, if he happened to need any meteorologists, um, you know, that I was in the process of getting my degree, and I'd be happy to try to help him out in that area. And, and he said, well, that's good, and I'm, I'm glad to hear this from you, but um, I'm going to strongly suggest that you continue with your education and, and um, you know, keep in touch. But, but, you know, until you get your degree, there's probably not much that we can or would be interested in, in doing with you. And so I, I, I let him know what I was doing as I was doing it and, um, you know, kept him apprised. And then in June of 1978, when I graduated, I, I told him that I had graduated. And um, in, in later that month, I got a a um, you know an internal company message that said um, there's there's an opening in the meteorology department and if you'd like to apply for it feel free to send us your your resume and the filled out application um, which I did and uh, interestingly my my station manager in Boston at the time Jerry Rousseau took me aside and and said hey um, uh, just to let you know they are very interested in in hiring you down in Atlanta as a meteorologist, because frankly, you will be the first person that they've ever hired from within the company as a meteorologist. 
And frankly, his words were, this is your job to lose, so don't screw it up. And, and so, um, so I did get invited down for an interview and, and went down and was in the employment office filling out the requisite paperwork. And I was sitting next to this big, tall, handsome, blonde-headed guy. And, and I, I, I started a conversation with him. And I, and I said, uh, hey, uh, what are you down here for? He said, well, I'm down here for a job in the meteorology department. And my heart sank. Because I, I thought that this job was mine, and now here's this here's this other guy that I'm not I'm now competing with. And so I said to him, so um, so well, what's what's your background? And he said, well, I'm a former Air Force weather officer, and then after I got out of the Air Force, I went back home to the state of West Virginia and worked as a state climatology officer for a few years. And I thought to myself, dude, you are done. There's there's no hope for you now. What I didn't know at the time was that in fact the Met shop at Delta had not one but two openings and Ray Little who became a very good friend and I were basically the prime candidates for these two positions so it was a little bit it, it was a little bit of a letdown at that point in time but um, but it all worked out well and in uh, in July of 1978 I, I, I started working as a meteorologist or what they called them then a weather analyst for Delta Airlines Wow the timing was perfect and you know, it's great that you kept those communication channels open with your contact at Delta because that was super helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you, you may be the most brilliant person in the world, but if nobody knows about you, then you're just the most brilliant, lonely person in the world at that point. And that wasn't the only job you held at Delta, if I'm correct. You moved on to some other roles. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how those other opportunities came up? Um, as I was three or four years into my tenure as a meteorologist at Delta, you know, I began to to wonder what was next. And um, and so the folks that we worked with most closely at Delta were a group of people called aircraft dispatchers. Now, an aircraft dispatcher is an FAA licensed airman. I could, if I had my wallet on me, I could show you my license. Just like a pilot, a commercial pilot is a, a licensed position. Um, and, and, and dispatchers basically um, share with the pilot in command uh, jointly uh, the responsibility for operational control of every flight. Uh, in other words, when you go flying, if today we were, we were flying like we were a few months ago, um, you know there's a pilot in the left seat of the, of the aircraft and a, and a first officer in the right seat, but there's also a third um, officer, if you will, um, attached to the flight, and that's an aircraft dispatcher uh, who basically prepares all the flight plans, um, uh, does the preliminary fuel load, which 99.9% .9 of the time is the final fuel load for the flight. Um, and then once the flight uh, operates, follows the flight and provides to the pilot in command any changes to the flight plan that are material to the successful conclusion of the flight. So um, so that sounded like to me like a very interesting job. And since I had actually grown up in an airline family, my dad was a station manager in Boston for many, many years for the Flying Tiger Line, which it was a cargo airline that um, ultimately was bought out by uh, FedEx in the mid-1980s, late-1980s, if I remember correctly. Um, and it, I'd been bitten by an airline bug and, and um, um, really liked airline operations a lot. And and figured I'd make a pretty good dispatcher. And so 
Um, I went to the director of flight control who, uh, who owns all the dispatchers, and, and I, I told him that I was interested perhaps in becoming a, um, a dispatcher. And, and um, the late Sam Brown, the director of flight control, told me, well, Franzie, we'd love to have you, but you'd have to take a pay cut because, you see, um, uh, where our dispatchers start is below where your salary is right now, and we don't have any latitude uh, insofar as bringing in a person, you know, at anywhere other than the starting position of uh, of a, an, an assistant dispatcher. And at that point in time, I was like two years into a new house. We had just graduated from the peanut butter and tuna fish plan into the hot dog <laughs> plan. And so so I just couldn't afford to take a pay cut. And so I told Sam, well, thanks anyhow. I appreciate it. And, you know, we'll see what happens. Well, lo and behold, talk about good timing, Kelly. Lo and behold, a year later, Delta... Um, transition from its previous flight plan system into, at the time, the, a new flight plan system, the net effect of which was that they uh, they had basically seven too many people in the meteorology department. And rather than letting, and this is, a, this is an unabashed plug for Delta Airlines, rather than um, letting seven meteorologists hit the streets, they basically offered seven meteorologists the opportunity to become dispatchers at a red line salary. And so I was at the head of the line with my paperwork all filled out saying, me, 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 me. And luckily enough for me, um, I, I did get selected and transitioned to the role of an aircraft dispatcher in 1984. Jeez, you got lucky twice. Good, <laughs> I mean, good timing. I mean, that's amazing. That you wanted to do it and, and you didn't want to take the pay cut. And then all of a sudden, the opportunity came about. It happened. And, and it, it's really good to be lucky. And it's also really good, I think, sometimes if you make your own luck. And again, Sam Brown knew that I was interested based on our conversation. And so when, when, when the chips fell my way and, and I was at the front of the line, that, that was probably... And I guess I was a reasonable meteorologist and human being, too. That, so, you know, it, there were... There, were, there was nothing in my record to suggest that, that they didn't, uh, that they were going to be taking on a liability if they took me. So we're still making our way towards where you are now. So I think there is one more step in between. It sounds like you didn't end your career at Delta as a flight superintendent. And uh, tell us about that final stage of your time at Delta. And then... Um, how you went from your master's degree to what happened next? Well, actually, actually, Rex, there's there's a, there's a lot of territory in between uh, 1984, which is when I transitioned over into flight control, and 2008 when I uh, retired from Delta. Um, I I I was about I don't know. Three or four years into into my time as a dispatcher, when I got asked by one of our supervisors if I wanted to um, participate in a special project, and you know, <laughs> at the time being even more naive than I am today, I, I said without hesitation, "Sure." And um, that led into you know doing quote back office work, and I did well enough at that back office work that it led into an offer to become a supervisor in the back office. And I did well enough at that, that it led to a, a manager's position, which I held for about 10 years. Um, and then in the mid-1990s, um, 
a series of events which which are, are too long and, and tortuous to go through took place that resulted in me voluntarily going back to the line, quote unquote. Uh, so leaving management and going back to a line position as what Delta called a sector manager. And I did that for um, for about five years. And then the new director of flight control at that time approached me and asked me if I'd consider coming back into management and working um, another stint, which I did. And at that point in time, I I held the very uh, interesting title of system manager of flight control technical services. And people would ask me, well, what does that mean? What do you do? And I would say, well, if it has nothing to do with, with aircraft operations domestic, or if it has nothing to do with aircraft operations international, or if it has nothing to do with flight control administration, then I probably have it. And so in that, in that kind of nebulous position of mine, I was responsible for the Delta Meteorology Department, uh, which had its own manager at that time, so he reported to me, uh, the Delta Radio Department, the Delta Navigation Database Group, and also um, for all um, automation and technical aspects as they impacted flight control. So I got to learn a lot about automation systems and, and uh, how it's all woven together and and um, I acted kind of as a business technical liaison between Delta's automation uh, folks and and the flight control department. Um, so I, I did that for five years um, and at the end of that time period, uh, that was when Delta was going through bankruptcy. There were some um, high level administrative changes at Delta that resulted in me correctly or otherwise concluding that um, th that where I was um, was likely to be as as good as it got for me at Delta and I, and I just I just wasn't sure um, that that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my career and so I opted to um, to re resign from my management job go back to um, a position on the floor this time as something called an ATC coordinator and go back to school. That was in 2005. Um, so I was still, as I did back in the, in the, uh, in the 1970s, I was working full-time and going to school full-time, uh, graduate school full-time. And, and um, three years later, um, had my diploma and, and voluntarily retired from Delta at the age of 52. And um, being the sort of person that, that liked to eat and and was hungry usually three times a day. I decided that I really wasn't retiring. I was just transitioning to my next job, whatever that was. And um, um, I looked around and got um, got two very good offers. One from a small aviation weather contractor uh, in the Washington metro D.C. metro area called Avmed Applications, and then I got another job from a a large manufacturer of aircraft avionics called Rockwell Collins. They're now known as Collins Aerospace. Um, and I decided to take the Collins job and um, moved out to Cedar Rapids, Iowa for a very long, very cold winter. I hadn't realized um, what basically 30, at the time, 30 years um, in Atlanta would does to your blood relative to um, growing up in, being born in Cleveland, growing up in the Boston area, and then working in in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I just I, I just didn't appreciate the cold like I once used to, I suppose, appreciate the cold. And so I began I began 
pining for warmer conditions, warmer work conditions, and um, and Kelly, another one of those um, you know lucky timing situations. I was working on an industry group with a fellow from the Mitre Corporation. We were co-chairing a subgroup together, and and um, I was in his office in McLean. And after we got through work one day, he said to me, "You know, you retired too quickly from Delta." And I said, "Pardon me, what, what did you just say?" And he said, "You retired." too quickly from Delta. I was actually I was actually trying to make arrangements to make you a job offer from MITRE when you took the, the job at Rockwell Collins. And I said, well, Mark, I, I did want to continue eating and supporting my family. And so um, that, that did factor into my decision making. And he said, well, yeah, I know. And it's, it's too bad you moved that quickly. And I said, well, you know, Situation changes. You know, may, maybe I'd maybe I'd be interested if you were to make me a job offer at, at Mitre. And so one thing led to another, and and um, a few weeks, months later, um, I had a very very difficult, probably the hardest conversation I've had in my life with a boss, where I've had to thank him for hiring me eight months ago and tell him that I was resigning my position and taking a different job. But I did then transition to working um, uh, at for the MITRE Corporation uh, in, in, in June of 2009. And I've now just recently celebrated my, the completion of my 11th year there, and I'm, I'm in my 12th. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been a good ride. So for your job at the MITRE Corporation, um, the Weather Portfolio Advisor, what, um, what level of education is required for that? Is it a master's degree? You needed the master's degree that you, that you had in order to get that position? No, actually, um, it's it's much. Frankly, it's much simpler than that. Um, I, I probably needed. I felt like I needed the master's degree to be competitive with all the really smart people who are out there, um, you know, trying to gain jobs. And at that time, I was an early fifties-year-old, you know, with a master's degree. So I, I I felt like I needed it in order to be competitive with all the other people. Who are out there, um, you know, looking for jobs in the aviation weather arena? Um, at at Mitre, our so so sorry, I'm going to have to get into the weeds here a little bit. Mitre is a non-profit or a not-for-profit company that manages and runs federally funded research and development centers, known as FFRDCs. You've probably heard of some of the other FFRDCs that are out there: MIT Lincoln Labs is the U.S. Air Force's FFRDC. Uh, NCAR is the weather FFRDC for the National Science Foundation. Um, Los Alamos National Labs is an FFRDC for the Department of Energy, I think. Uh, MITRE actually manages seven FFRDCs, one of which is known as CASD, which stands for, if I don't butcher this, the Center for Advanced Aviation System Development. Uh, that's the FFRDC that I primarily support, um, and our federal sponsor of CASD is the FAA. So, the FAA divides itself up for the purposes of organizing its its work into portfolios, uh, and there is a portfolio called the National Airspace System or NAS Infrastructure Portfolio. And the NAS infrastructure portfolio is where all of the weather work that the FAA either does itself or um, 
uh, funds other organizations like NCAR and AVMED applications uh, to do. Uh, it, it, this is the portfolio where it is managed. So what, what my role is, is as an advisor to the folks within the FAA next-gen directorate who look after the NAS infrastructure portfolio, I advise them on, on basically the, the, the weather matters within their portfolio. I am kind of a non-FAA trusted partner weather subject matter expert for these folks within the FAA that manage these projects. And, and to your question, what do, you, what, huh, do I have to have a master's degree? No, but 65 to 70% of the employees at the MITRE Corporation have either graduate or, or doctorate level degrees. So in, in order to even be, I think, reasonably considered at MITRE, I felt like I needed um, that degree. Mine happens to be in, in meteorology and aeronautical science. MITRE has a handful, and I mean a single handful of of meteorologists, um, I can think of one, two, three, maybe four degreed meteorologists at the MITRE Corporation right now, plus an additional number of people who are, by virtue of their jobs, um, weather subject matter experts within their aviation weather field of expertise. Um, but, but I became almost by default the weather portfolio advisor by virtue of being this guy who uh, knows a, a good bit about aviation weather and also about uh, aeronautical sciences in general. So I'd like to ask you, maybe going back all the way to your undergraduate degree in meteorology, were there any classes that were not in your strict uh, kind of curriculum requirement that would have been helpful for you or for other students um, in the aviation field that you could think of that, you know, you'd mentioned those liberal arts classes that at first you thought weren't really in your interest, but, you know, then you, you thought back that maybe some of those might have been helpful for you. Yeah, I have the benefit of lots and lots and lots of hindsight, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. So at the end of the day, as, a, as, a, uh, as an aviation weather forecaster at Delta Airlines, it was my, my job my function to, to uh, communicate to our customers who primarily were the aircraft dispatchers and the, the pilots of our flights, the forecast information that I was putting together. And at the end of the day, as, as, as we all know, weather forecasts are uncertain. Sometimes we present them deterministically, sometimes we present them probabilistically, but at the end of the day, there's always uncertainty associated with that. And so there there ends up being a skill that that you that you end up um, developing on on how to communicate that uncertainty while while delivering an appropriate forecast message. Um, you know, this is the same stuff that the Hurricane Center grapples with. This is the same stuff that broadcast meteorologists grapple with. That our our fine forecasters at the WFOs uh, grapple with it is how to how to take this this forecast that is by its very nature uncertain and provide good information while still relaying that uncertainty or, or that the, the, the fact that very few of these forecasts are 100% certain of, of anything. That would have been a, a, a really interesting and good non-STEM 
skill to, uh, to, 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 to get more training on. Same thing with human factors, which uh, again, with the benefit of, of age and hindsight is, 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 is so important in, um, in, in, in how we um, prepare and, and present and communicate um, forecasts to our customers. Um, again, I could be the best forecaster in the world and technically or as, as, as measured by objective verification techniques, my forecast can be the best in the world. And if, and if I don't have a good, effective way of communicating them, then I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I might as well not be doing what I'm doing. So that's, that's one area that I think on the non-STEM side um, would, have been, would have been really, really useful to know more about um, and to learn more about while in school. Um, just as I have a theory that there are two flavors of meteorologists, I also have a theory that the world, unbeknownst to us, is run by two classes of people. They are statisticians and electrical engineers. Now, electrical engineers bring an, an engineering rigor to the table that that um, very few other disciplines, I would argue, do so. Statisticians have this have this way of looking at uncertainty and at probabilities and 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 at 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 um, what these numbers really mean. That that I wish. I wish I understood better. I'm involved in a in a, just a fascinating project right now where we're quantifying explicit uncertainties associated with terminal wind forecasts, be they from TAFs or from the LAMP or even from a numerical weather prediction like HER. And at the foundation of this work are statistical methods that I've, I've read about, I've heard about, and maybe even in graduate school, I did a little bit of in support of my capstone project and some of the other classes that I took. But, but gosh, the, the, the machine learning, artificial intelligence statisticians that I'm, I'm working with right now um, know so much more about that. And it is so applicable to the work that we do that I, I just frankly wish that I, I knew a little bit more about it. And and could apply it more successfully. So there's another area that that if there were if I had it to do over again, I would I would probably grudgingly take more statistics um, in in both undergraduate uh, and, and grad school. And and finally, let me say that if you're a meteorologist and you can also code well in Python or R, I know how to spell Python, and I'm especially proud of knowing how to spell R. Then 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 <laughs> that that is a combination that is really, really hard to beat and really useful in today's day and age, in my opinion. Matt, could you give us an idea of what a typical day on the job is like for you at the MITRE Corporation? Um, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm project lead on this, on this uh, a very interesting terminal wind translation automatic optimization project right now. I'm also task lead on um, another task having to do with pilot reports and the reconstitution of the FAA's weather community of interest. Um, I'm a subject matter expert on a um, on a task involving um, trajectory-based operations and and a user engagement uh, piece with it. I'm also the uh, as I mentioned earlier the co-chair of the Friends and Partners of Aviation Weather, and I'm also currently the chairman of the uh, American Meteorological Society's Aviation Range and Aerospace Meteorology Committee. Um, so w between those five things, there's always something 
going on that that requires a meeting that that um, requires some sort of interfacing with people. Um, and so so my day at at Mitre is comprised of sometimes more meetings than I'd like, but but a fair number of meetings. It's comprised of of reading and or writing uh, on certain topic areas or on um, you know developing certain um, uh, presentation materials or uh, technical reports that that we collectively would call deliverables that go with our projects. Um, it, it's involved with coordinating across different um, entities within the FAA, uh, the, the Weather Service. Um, uh, some of the the labs like NCAR, uh, Lincoln Labs, uh, the National Weather Service uh, research arms on topics of mutual interest. In essence, I tell people that I that I get paid to um, to read, to write, to think, to speak. And since I I really don't mind doing any one of those, and you can probably already tell that, um, and I get paid for it to boot. I'm just I'm I'm just perfectly happy doing what I am uh, right now. And and um, this fur-lined um, rabbit hole that I found myself in, Br'er Fox, thank you for throwing me in. I do appreciate it. So reading, thinking, writing, speaking, what do you think you'd like most about your job out of those categories? Or is it something else entirely? <laughs> it's probably the speaking. It's probably telling stories. And and what I am, you know, I... I, I I have a, another colleague at MITRE um, who is just, he has such a sense of imagination and, and he, can, he can imagine futures and, and, and the, the weather component in it and, and, and how, many, how many neat research threads there are in this. And, 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 and he can turn that into um, a business development um, effort in, in Seemingly in just a heartbeat, and I know it's not just a heartbeat, but it seems like it to me. I consider myself to be almost devoid of imagination as compared to him. What I am pretty good at is connecting dots, and I've done a lot of things in my career. So there's a lot of dots out there for me to connect. Um, I like thinking about those and connecting those dots, and then I like bringing together the people that could help you know, forward, uh, improve an idea, uh, mature an idea based on, on these dots being connected and, and, and working on, on that angle. I, I like that a lot. So is that the speaking part or the thinking part or the reading part? It's probably a little bit of, a little bit of both, Rex. I'm not, I'm not sure that I could absolutely say one over the other. I don't mind public speaking. Um, and for folks who do, it's, it can be a, um, I would say, a, a, a career impediment that would probably be worth perhaps, again, doing some, some work on, on trying to, to mitigate to the extent that you can. I know speaking is not for everybody. I just absolutely don't mind getting up in front of a, a bunch of people and, and yakking, and, um, and, and it should be clear by now that that's the case. <laughs> so what types of challenges do you encounter in your position? Weather as a topic area crosses so many organizational boundary lines and gets into so many lines of business that, that, that we have to do a lot of coordination that, that sometimes as a meteorologist, you can't see the forest for the trees. You, you assume that everybody knows to at least at some 
fundamental level what's going on meteorologically and and sadly this is this is not necessarily the case and so you have to do more more coordinating more proselytizing more um hey i see that you're working on this did you know that that this group over here is also working on that and and can bring these things to the table there's a because weather covers so many areas it is by definition cross departmental cross organizational um it's just a very very wide wide ranging field and it can be very difficult sometimes frustrating to get everybody in tune with what they need to know about weather at the same time weather and meteorologists are almost always by definition not decision makers they're they're advisors they they provide guidance they provide advice to people about uh, meteorological topics and then the decision makers the the aircraft dispatchers the the emergency management officers the uh, the the airport manager the, the 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 mission the range officer and the mission control officer they take the information and they they make the decisions and sometimes they make decisions that that both with the benefit of hindsight um, and 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 um, you know lots of experiences of doing that at doing this we, we we wish they hadn't and it kind of connects back to this notion of gee we can have the best forecast in the world but if we don't communicate it properly in terms of the decision makers need and, and in ways that they fully understand the implications and the and, and the risk reward that's at play, then sometimes they'll make the wrong decisions with what you thought was a pretty dang good forecast. So another question we always like to check on is work-life balance, either at the moment in your current job or in the past and how you've navigated that element of career. Wow. Well, I've I've been married to the same lady for 42 plus years and she has... She has um, had to deal with a with a husband and father who was a shift worker on either eight or ten or twelve hour shifts on the front side of the clock, on the back side of the clock, um, who had to ask his wife if at all possible to please keep the kids quiet at nine a.m. because I'm trying to get some sleep before my next midnight shift, um, and I know that's not easy to to have done. Um, so I've worked those sorts of situations probably for 15 or 20 years of my career in total um, to working um, as a as a manager uh, responsible for, for people and systems, which is a, an eight to five job, which really means a seven to seven job and work comes home with you in your briefcase um, to my current position where I'm I'm not responsible for people directly. Um, I'm I'm at. At MITRE, I'm what it, on what is called a um, a technical path versus uh, a managerial path. So I'm not responsible for people other than um, as they um, as I interact with them and and um, uh, work with them on on projects or tasks that I lead. Um, I'm a teleworker. So when I started at MITRE, I, I my hope was to be a teleworker from the very get go. And my first boss. 
Um, after after we had had that conversation, I mentioned way back when in nineteen. I mean, sorry, in in two thousand and uh, in in eight, early two thousand and nine, my first boss had indicated to me initially that he thought that I could be a teleworker right from the get go at MITRE. And then later he came to me and said, "I've talked this over with a number of people, and and we all believe that it it will work best for you and for us to have you spend some period of time at MITRE before you." physically at MITRE before you begin working as a, as a teleworker. And so for the first year, almost to the day, I worked locally at, at MITRE uh, in McLean, Virginia, outside of uh, Washington, D.C., um, and then commuted my way home most weekends. And um, MITRE had a bit of a space crunch in, uh, in early 2010 and asked uh, its workforce that if any people had and he had a desire to become a teleworker, this would be a good time to, to apply for it. Now, the agreement between thieves, <laughs> that is between my boss and I, that we had a gentleman's, uh, and there was definitely not one gentleman in the midst, that being me, but the agreement we had was that 18 to 24 months of working in person ought to be just what the doctor ordered. And so here I was at the 12-month mark, and I, I went to my my boss and my boss's boss, and I said, hey, guys, we said 18 to 24 months, it's 12 months. What do you think? Think I can make it as a teleworker? And if so, I'd like to take advantage of this opportunity because who knows, it may not happen again for a long time. And they said they, they thought that I could survive as a teleworker with 12 months under my belt. So I applied and was given permission to transition. On And on Father's Day in 2010, my wife and I and our 24-foot rider truck uh, uh, had all my stuff from DC and we drove it back down to, uh, Metro Atlanta and, and, uh, and I've been working as a teleworker from here ever since 2010. So what does that mean to me and my work-life balance? Well, it means that, um, although my technical office hours are from, from 0800 to, uh, to 5 PM more or less, the, the reality is that um, as long as I make all of my required meetings and and get my work done and show up at the required times um, and put in the requisite number of hours per pay period that that I can more or less set my own hours. So um, so tomorrow I have no meetings first thing, and so I have a dentist appointment, and um, I will just be out of the office during my dentist appointment hours and then start my work day up a little bit later. Um, I have no, uh, all, both of my children are now grown adults. So I have no children or grandchildren here at home on a routine basis. So, um, so I, I, I move my hours around as, as best suits my schedule. For instance, I'm working closely right now with some folks from Alaska who are four hours behind us time-wise. I have no problem doing work at 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. or whenever because um, it's either eat or um, or or do work or watch TV, which I do very little of, or listen to music, which I do a lot of, and and um, and I'm I'm happy to work late at night. So I'm I'm my work life balance right now is very much in my favor. I'm I'm very much appreciative of what I have right now and what it enables me to do. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't have expected to be in this place or or could have done this early in my career. You know, when I was when I was gathering all these various and sundry skills and knowledge and abilities that I now have, but at this stage in my career, it's it's very flexible, um, it's it's very desirable and enjoyable as far as I'm concerned, and 
And and people ask me since I'm 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 nearly at full Social Security retirement age, when are you going to retire? And I say to people, well, as my old friend and colleague Ernie Dash told me, um, when I wake up in the morning resenting going to work, and when I go to industry meetings and find I'm no longer relevant, then I'll know it's time to hang it up. Meanwhile, I'm I don't mind getting up in the morning and going to work. And I believe, until somebody disabuses me of the notion that I'm still relevant at, at industry meetings, and they pay me reasonably well to boot. So you know what? I'm just going to keep on riding this horse till its legs come off. Yeah, sounds like you're in a, in a great position right now, flexible and, and in your favor. So hey, why not? Why not keep going? So um, during your career, is there an event or um, anything specific that you would consider to be really exciting that happened to you? Um, exciting is such a loaded word. Maybe interesting, you know, in the cursed sense of the word is 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 more appropriate. Um, just coincidentally, when when 9-11 happened, um, I happened to be the senior flight control manager on duty uh, on that particular day. And um, I watched with awe, absolute awe, as the dispatchers and pilots of not only Delta Airlines, but all the other airline operators that were running that day, together with the air traffic controllers and traffic managers of the FAA, managed to close down the national airspace system in, in literally one to two hours. Just it, it's in, in many ways, you know, it's an experiment that nobody had probably done prior to that point. Nobody had simulated. And, and the experiment was run in real time, in real life. Sort of like um, the experiment that we seem to be in right now in, the, in these very interesting times in, in which we live. Uh, but that was, that was a very, uh, probably one of the most um, sobering moments that I can, uh, that, that I can relate. Um, I, I did, I, I did uh, mention in the, in the written information I gave you a situation that I had um, in the mid-1990s, I was on a number of industry committees, including one called the International Air Transport Association, North Atlantic, North American Regional Coordination Group, or IATA NATNAM RCG for short. Um, and I was the, the, the chair of that organization. And um, we were at a meeting in which the concept of reduced vertical separation minima was being debated. Reduced vertical separation minima, or RVSM, is the procedure that went into place about um, now 20-ish years ago, 15 years ago, where um, aircraft above flight level 290 used to be have to be separated by 2,000 feet, would have their vertical separation criteria reduced to 1,000 feet. And one of the first areas where this a process was going to take place was in the North Atlantic, where there was a, um, a just a, a crying need for additional capacity or additional airspace to be flown by all the aircraft that wanted to cross the North Atlantic, all basically at the same time and all basically on the same route. And so we, the the airline industry, were pushing for the introduction of this RVSM process into the North Atlantic the providers of air traffic services, the air navigation service providers, that is to say the, the, uh, the folks from the, the Shanwick Area Control Center, 
um, in the United Kingdom, the folks from the Gander Area Control Center in Canada, the the uh, the Reykjavik uh, folks up in uh, up in Iceland, the New York um, Oceanic folks in in New York Center, um, they were all very nervous and very skittish about about making this change because there are a lot of technical and procedural things that were going to have to be introduced almost all at once to a workforce that I won't say is resistant to change, but but that is reliant on doing things the same way over and over and over and over again. That's why they get so good in part at what they're doing. That is the air traffic control community. And so we were at this meeting and and the first half of the day was given over to the air navigation service providers to tell us, the industry, why they couldn't possibly roll out RVSM on the schedule that had been laid out and that they had more or less committed to earlier. And I guess I had you know, heard enough of this and finally gotten it right up to here. And, and we went to lunch and after lunch we came back and it was our turn to argue why we needed to roll out RVSM on the schedule. And I had just gotten just very excited by what I heard in the first half of the day. And I don't, gosh, I don't, Kelly, remember what I said that day. But I must have said it very, I'll bet you I said it very emotionally, and it must have been reasonably eloquent, because at the end of my time trying to convince these leaders of these area control centers why they needed to roll out RVSM on time, the head spokesman for this group, who was a fellow named Miles Murphy, who was the ops manager at the Shannon Area Control Center, he, he said to me, Matt, I don't know. If I could do an Irish accent, I wouldn't, but I can't. And I don't want <laughs> to butcher it, so I'll just say it straight up. He said, Matt, I don't know that you've convinced me or us that the schedule that's been proposed, that, 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 that we will be able to keep to that schedule or even want to keep to that schedule, but I'll tell you this. He said, if I ever come over to the United States, and God forbid should I ever get arrested for drunk driving, I want you to be my lawyer when I go before the judge. <laughs> and 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 I I, re, I remember that as again one of those. Well, I don't know what I did because I was probably so focused on making my point that I couldn't even hear what I was saying. But whatever it was I said must have been pretty good for him to want me to be his lawyer, even though I'm the furthest thing from a lawyer. So another question for you, Matt. What advice do you have for students? or for early career professionals who wanted to follow in your footsteps in your career or in your field, this could be something you could tell them you know, at graduation or something inspirational or something more specific. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about following in my career per se, but um, you, you know, in, in, in my case, not being pigeonholed as just a single thing um, has has been a very a very useful attribute as time has gone on. Um, so so I, I guess you know kind of a career philosophy. I would say get very good at what you're doing, and don't be afraid to try to get very good at something else. In in my opinion, for instance, if if you know if a if a if a person was to come to me and say, hey, I, I'd like to I'd like to um, investigate <clears throat> or inquire about working at the MITRE Corporation, you know, what you do sounds very interesting to me. 
um, I would, and I'm a meteorologist, and, and my, my retort would be, is that all? Because if that's all, you're probably not going to get hired as a meteorologist at the MITRE Corporation. You need to be a, a meteorologist and something. And that, that other something could be um, a commercial pilot. Um, we have, a, we have a, a, a gentleman working for, he was the fourth. I could not think of the fourth. Shoot. Uh, we have a gentleman working for us now um, as, a, as, a, um, as a part-time person, his choice, um, who is a bachelor's and master's degree of meteorologist, a, an experienced aviation meteorologist, a licensed and experienced aircraft dispatcher, and he just retired after 30-some years as a pilot for American Airlines. So he brings to the table the whole gamut from weather forecast to dispatcher to pilot in command. And oh, by the way, he was a management pilot for at least half of that 30-some year career at American Airlines and took over my position as chairman of the NatNam Regional Coordination Group after I left there. So so there's a, a, a broadness, a breadth that he and I think I bring to the table that um, that makes us attractive to a company like the MITRE Corporation, which is looking at um, applied meteorology and, and how how weather works across the various lines of business um, at the FAA. So so that's a long way of saying be diverse. Don't don't just be you know one thing. Be as diverse as you can be. be in, in my opinion, is it better to be a, 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 a master of one trade or a jack of many? I would, I would definitely throw my hat in the, in the jack of many rings. And speaking of many rings, what we do both at MITRE, um, at the Weather Service, uh, at, at, at um, uh, companies like Delta Airlines with a meteorology department that, that involves weather, involves somebody somewhere along the line writing code, um, um, creating, creating apps or programs that, that leverage this particular area of, of the, the meteorology field. And if you're a meteorologist who can write code, who is fluent in, in, in a Python or an R or even, even VBS in Excel, um, there are so many things that you can do with that combination of, of skills that, 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 that make you very attractive, in my opinion, um, to to either your current employer or to future employers that you might not have. So, um, I would I would certainly, you know, encourage um, you know that kind of of combination. Another thing that, it, with the benefit of hindsight, I look back on and regret a little bit. And I'm not I'm not doing this uh, Rex and, and and Kelly because I'm sucking up for a job later on. But but I I just I just didn't. I was not as involved in AMS early in my career as with the benefit now of hindsight, I wish I had been. Um, I, I find the interactions through AMS to be very rewarding. I find the need for people to contribute to what AMS does to be significant. Um, and and um, the, the contacts that I've made and the things that I've learned in in being involved in the Aviation Range and Aerospace Meteorology Committee uh, of the AMS um, ha ha over the last several years have been significant. And so uh, it's a regret of mine that if I had it to do over again, I think I would, I would stay more connected with AMS, with either the local chapters or the, or the, you know, um, or the, the main organization and the annual meetings than I have in the past. Well, we're certainly happy to hear that. 
So Matt, we always ask our guests one last fun question at the end of each podcast. What is your favorite band or musician? If you'd look at my musical taste over the years, and I just completed one of those goofy Facebook challenges where, you know, you put out your your 10 albums without saying a whole much about them. And I look at them and I and I, I think to myself, man, your musical tastes have gone all over the place. But right now I am enthralled with a three-woman supergroup known as I'm With Her, which features uh, Sarah Watkins on fiddle, Sarah Jarose on mandolin and guitar, and Aoife O'Donovan on guitar, and all three on vocals, and they are just consummate female bluegrass country and, and just the most wonderful musicians. I could listen to them all day long. Well, it sounds incredible. I have to give him a listen. You should. You absolutely should. I'm with her. Good to hear. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Matt, and sharing your work experiences with us. You're more than welcome, Rex. And um, it's been a lot of fun for me. I do enjoy gabbing about this. It's been fun for us, too. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time. Rain or shine. Shine.